This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. This afternoon, it's my pleasure to welcome to Books and Books a good friend who I haven't seen in a number of years, but someone who every time comes to Books and Books, it's a highlight for me, and that's the great Rick Bragg. No, you are way too nice to me. Not at all. In fact, I want to start by saying that um, it's a story that you may, you probably don't remember, but my first introduction to Rick and his particular um, brilliant form of storytelling happened before I read his first book, All Over uh, But the Shouting. Rick was at a trade show uh, that was somewhere. I don't remember where it was exactly. It was somewhere in the South. It might have been Memphis or Nashville or somewhere. And Wick was presenting as kind of the featured uh, writer there. And I'm just a kid from Miami Beach. And, uh, you know, those, those, that, that kind of Southern storytelling isn't something that's necessarily in my tradition. But it was for lots of booksellers there, including me. And Rick started to tell the story of All Over But the Shouting. And by the end, you couldn't hear a pin drop, except at the very end, when Rick finished, the entire room of hundreds of people stood up in one of the longest standing ovations I'd ever heard. Um, Rick, you uh, are able to captivate a room. You captivate readers everywhere through all of your work. Um, we know all over but the shouting, but you've also written Ava's Man, um, the Prince of Frogtown. You did the book on the, the Jessica Lynch story. Um, you told the story of Jerry Lee Lewis, and we'll get to that a little bit. You were telling me before some stories about that. Somebody told me, and today we're celebrating the publication of Rick's uh, new book called The Best Cook in the World. And I just thought I'd open that, that by just say, giving you a sense of Rick. I don't know if you want to do this, but I'm going to ask you to do this. I just loved the opening acknowledgement. Oh, sure. Can you read this? Sure. Because me... it says something about you, I believe. Oh, it, it's my pleasure. I always believe that there's no reason why the acknowledgements couldn't read good. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it... <laughs> but, Instead uh, of just a list. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and also, you got to thank all those people that might be mad at you after the fact. <laughs> I've learned it to be, uh, that it's a great uh, uh, balm uh, if you do it right. I have many people to thank for helping me bring this book to its completion. So many, I don't even know how to start. I guess I will just begin as I always have, by thanking my people, living and dead, who furnished me with stories and the memories that made it possible. Not just this book, but my very life as a writer, kin and friends. And sometimes just chance encounters gave this book the flavor I hope it contains. There are literally hundreds of them. Their lifetimes frame these stories and color them. Thanks, Rick. It gives you a sense of, uh, of the brilliance of Rick Bragg. Uh, Rick was also um, and has been a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, 
Uh, he was the bureau chief here in Miami for the New York Times and the St. Petersburg, uh, Saint Petersburg Times. Times as Back well. when it was the St. Pete Times. Right, yeah. when it was the St. Pete Times. Uh, Rick is now teaching at the University of Alabama, uh, but he is also looking after his mom, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Tell me, tell me, Rick, a little bit about where you live now and how it's brought you almost full circle. Sure. Well, I, it seems like I kind of live in every Marriott in America sometimes. But, but my, I, I was lucky enough with on a few books in the past, and I bought my mom a, a house, uh, and it was a a good house. I thought a four bedroom brick house on a hill, and and she didn't like it because she said it had too many light bulbs. <laughs> so uh, we exchanged it after about seven years for a 40-acre a farm of mountain pasture with livestock and Hereford cows grazing in the front yard. And, and she was happy there, and she's continued to be happy there. But she got sick uh, about four or five years ago, and, and since that time, and for a lot of other reasons— um, I've been there. I went home, which I've always kind of was inside my head. But now I'm physically home and physically having to lift 100-pound sacks of feed. So I'm, I'm not sure how much progress I've made. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I'm still having to like hold a rope on a donkey while the vet does terrible things to it. So I'm, I'm not sure I've really gotten that far in my literary life. Well, well let's talk about let's talk about that journey that you mm-hmm. took. Um, tell me what the eight-year-old Rick Bragg was like. Well, unclean, basically unclean. My mother would not allow me in the kitchen because I was always covered in such effluvium. You know, red dirt would be the cleanest thing on me. Red dirt, red mud, coal, uh, smut, uh, tadpole slime. Um, I, yeah, I was just generally unclean, you know, all manner of, of livestock, uh, effluvium. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I was white haired because, uh, I, I guess from my mama's side of the family and, and I was puny. I was really small. And, uh, my mother, uh, raised me once. She said, I raised you when you were little, you wouldn't eat anything but goat's milk and canned chili. So uh, I guess it was either like grow up or die. And you and you had brothers yeah, as well. Yeah, I had a, a, a older brother who who beat me up on a fairly regular basis. I once this is the, my only victory in all the years he and I lived together was I waited patiently for years. You know, Faulkner, Faulkner said that a, a mule would wait years patiently for a chance to kick you once. And I didn't know that line then, but I know the feeling because I waited for years for him to get hung up in a barbed wire fence so I could throw rocks at him. <laughs> so, so we have, uh, yeah, That's he was, true. and he can, but he can, you know, he got better as he got older and he's kind of, he's a steady one. Yeah. You know, my little brother is the great adventure in our life and I'm in the middle. Well, that's great. And, and I know from reading all over uh, But the Shot that you didn't have an easy time of it with your dad, right? Well, he was a, he was a man that was, seemed like he was mostly comprised of, of seemed like clinking beer bottles and broken glass. And, and he was a fighter. He was a Marine in Korea. And um, he raised uh, 
you know, fighting roosters and, and, and he, and I, and I'm ashamed of this, but he raised dogs for the pit and he was a violent man. He liked fighting. Sure. And, um, and he drank too much. And my mother, uh, that's why she's reappeared in more than one book because she was always between us and anything that would hurt us, whether it was something as far away as the outside world or something as close as the next room. And she was always between us. So that's why she gets honored so many times. Well, and you've, you've, she's become a, a heroic, uh, she's been, she's a heroine in, 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 in literature now. Um, when did, when did the, when did the reading bug hit? When did the writing bug hit? How did all that emerge from this slimy kid yeah, I, as an eight year old? Yeah. Imagine the condition of the pages when you're trying to read a book, eat fried chicken or barbecue and, you know, imagine the dismay of the library. <laughs> but uh, I, we had a public library in, in town, and it was not the first reading I did. The first uh, reading was just whatever came in the boxes of, not really charity, but, you know, we would pass magazines and newspapers and paperbacks around as a family. So you might get, you could get everything, anything and everything. And my father, his last gift to me was a, box of books. Wow. Now, were they readers? Your family was my, a family of my readers? My mother has mostly been a reader of, of um, she loved Pat Conroy. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, uh, she loved, n- n- not the mean books, she says, but Like the Water is Why, which has got some cruelty in it, too. But, but uh, and I think that may just be because he came to visit her one time and brought her flowers and brought her half a German chocolate cake. Yeah. We're not sure where the first half of that cake went. But, what was your relationship with Pat? Did you develop he, a relationship with yeah, him? Yeah, he was as good to me as anybody has ever been. I've been really lucky in this business. I mean, Pat would call and he would leave me this message. It was always the same message on the machine. It was always, Bragg, this is Conroy. I guess it's up to me to keep this dying friendship alive. <laughs> Ours could have been a father-son relationship, but you spurned me for those Yankees in New York. But he would always end it by saying, uh, I love you, son. Yeah. And, and, and it, it would break your heart. And uh, But he was as much an advocate as anybody in my Life has oh, that's beautiful. Been. Yeah, and I mean, he was that. You know, I didn't know him very, very well, but he would come to the Miami Book Fair every sure. year, and and his 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 genuine empathy and caring was something that just enveloped you. You just felt loved when you were with him. And it was, and the thing is, he could be so acerbic and so completely. You know, he <laughs> could cut you your knees right out from under you, but whenever he would talk writing with me. I walked away on air. You know, right. every time we talked about writing, we talked about lines, a pretty line or a thought. And he'd stop and read it out loud to you. Well, how did you meet him? Where did you meet Pat? Well, uh, I was minding my own business, which is usually the way things happen with Pat. And uh, all over but the shouting was coming out. And that was two decades ago. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I... I Somehow, I didn't ask him for a blurb. I didn't ask anybody for one because I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what a blurb was. I'm not kidding. You know, I found out quickly. But 
uh, I was in Atlanta. I was working for the New York Times, and the uh, the, the office manager said, uh, "Rick, there's uh, Pat Conroy on the line for you." And I mm-hmm. and I thought, of course, it was right. You know, Somebody was. It'd be like joke. Elvis calling you, right? You know, an aircraft. And I I told him. I, I picked it up, and and basically he he just decided to be my friend. Oh, that's great. And he and he sent me this beautiful letter because he still believed in letters. And it was just to to tell me what he thought of the book and and you know, with his usual bombast, he went over the top. He you know, he, I never will forget, you know, reading it out loud and didn't know I was reading it out loud. You know, I was so surprised to have it. I just said, uh, I thought of Melville. I thought of <laughs> something I can't remember. And I thought to myself, well, he's full of it, but I sure do love that guy. Yeah, but absolutely. You, absolutely. So so you had that life. You were doing all of that. You were reading. You were reading from the library. Mm-hmm. Uh I know the story because I read it uh, in in so many of your books. But tell t- tell tell me a little bit more about what it took for you, with your background, to decide to make a career as a writer. What was that? What was that like when you did that? Well, it, and how it, was it received? Sure. Well, it had to be in a. It had to be in a workmanlike, blue collar, way. The only way that I could write was, uh, and I, you know, this is not poor me. I think a lot of writers, you know, they they suffer and do without, and they, you know, they walk around eating Campbell soup for twelve years. And but the truth is, I, you know, I had to work, and it was either swing a pick or drive a dump truck, which I can do, or a tractor, or it was find a way to write for money. And, and that and, led you to newspapers. Yeah. In those days, if you were going to write for a living, <laughs> then the way to, to, to get a steady paycheck was to try to get a newspaper to hire you. And you were writing sport. You wrote sports yeah, stories. Yeah, I think they with. were far too intelligent to allow me to do anything political <laughs> or anything. Yeah, could you imagine the terror of me doing like a banking story or a, or a, those yeah. were to come? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. But I had a, a I was. Yeah, I got to cover Bear Bryant. Right. You know, I got to stand in the uh, garage area of the Talladega 500 as Richard Petty and, you know, wheeled in. And um, I got to have a lot of fun uh, doing it. And I was 18. And then, and then clearly your talent shone through because you were then recruited by the New York Times, I think right. at that well, point. Yeah, I, I did a, uh, I did the usual. I, you know, I went to the uh, big paper in my part of the world, the Birmingham News, uh, and then the the St. Pete Times, which it, you know it continues to be a great right. paper. But but uh, it was it was uh, you know it was the mecca for for if you sure. were if you if you were a guy who considered yourself rightly or wrongly a writer, you that was the place you wanted to go. And uh, I turned them down the first time, which was the dumbest thing I've ever done. The St. Pete Times. Yeah, and sent the managing editor a, a letter basically saying, uh, I was dumb once, I won't be dumb again. <laughs> and I think he actually felt sorry for me, so they gave me a job. And uh, 
And then that brought me, you know, to Florida and, and caused me very quickly to fall in love with Florida. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your love affair. What was it like coming to Miami at that time? It must have been like coming to a, another world. It right? was because that was the, you know, people always ask me, uh, what was it like, you know, the first time you walked down Broadway? Well, the truth is, you know, I, you know, in Miami at the time in the early nineties, you know, you didn't need any more excitement than Miami could provide. I mean, there were, uh, it was beautiful. I mean, there was, for a guy writing about living, there was fighting and loving and killing and dying and, 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 all this against this backdrop of, I always felt like I was standing here, and I've said this, at the edge of something. Right. That, that, that I was at the edge of something, and if I would just take one more step, I would, I would disappear into something even grander and darker and more glittering than, than Miami was. And by God, I was almost right because I left from here to go to Haiti. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, I... Uh, well, I, I was amazed, but your reporting from Haiti was some of the strongest reporting that I had, that I had read. Is there one story that is emblematic of your time here that you remember? Is there one, one thing you worked on that you can talk about? Well, we'll probably run out of time, but, but uh, because, you know, you, some people... I've said of New Orleans that I love the city of New Orleans the way some people love women. I I don't know what deeper depth of love there is, but Miami is is uh, Miami is different. And 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 uh, you know, I went up to Fort Lauderdale and there's a, a little boy who um, his name was uh, nickname was Dirty Red, and this was my first stint in Miami. And he uh, had been arrested for hurting a little girl. And uh, it was a sexual abuse case. Well, he was five or six, seven years old. I can't really remember now. And the, the, the deputies in Broward County picked him up, took him in, fingerprinted him, booked him, put him in an orange suit or whatever they gave Inmates. And he was five or six. Yeah, he was a little boy. They rolled up the arms and the, the legs so that, you know, he would not look ridiculous. And then decided and found out, well, oops, no, we, we've caught the real culprit. And uh, and they just dumped, took him home and dumped him out on the curb, essentially. And, and the people in the community still believed it, still believed it. And he was very shy. He was painfully shy. And it resulted in an abuse, a, a, a casual but heartbreaking community abuse Use of him. Of him, and I wrote a, a story about it. Pulled it from a local story, I'm sure, in the Herald, I think. Right. And and uh, I wrote a long magazine type thing. And I've always found it a lot easier to get to the point when it's long. And. Uh, and I don't know if it did any long-term good, but it maybe did a little short-term. Good. Yeah. And his mama uh, would take, I took her a big old stack. Yeah, stack. And she would like put them on, tape them or tack good. them. 
to walls so that people would see it. Might have lightened his burden a it little got, bit. It got some attention. It got the attention yeah. of maybe some psychiatrists. And, Good. And, you know, it, it got some, some, it's got the kind of attention that you hope something gets. Well, I want to go from the newspaper Rick Bragg to the book Rick Bragg. But first, we're going to take just a short break. You're listening to The Literary Life. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. I'm here with Rick Bragg. Um, and, you know, Rick, it's interesting. You, you went from being a, uh, a writer of long, uh, wonderful pieces of almost like participatory journalism, but you would go, you take deep dives into people's lives. And that was always what I always thought about you as someone who was able to explore someone's life in a different sort of way. You were looking at it through a different kind of lens and, and making me understand some something about a person that I might have walked by or somebody that I might not have paid a lot of attention to. But you did, which was kind of remarkable. And in reading your books, I can see why. I mean, you grew up uh, you grew up in a world that had been ignored for so long by so many people. Uh, we see it you know, it's talked about now in terms of, uh, you know, why we have the president we have is that uh, so many politicians and so many others ignored that vast middle part of the country. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I, I, I think that um, my people, the people, the foothills of the Appalachians, uh, we, we don't need any help to make a bad decision. <laughs> you know, we, you, you, you give us... I've reason. always said, yeah, give us a little room, a little <laughs> rope, and you know what happens. But, uh, but my uh, the the sad truth is that ten people at a time we're the best people on the planet. Twenty people at a time that's almost a congregation in a in a congregational holiness church. We're fine, but boy, put us in an electorate and we will get a little squirrely, <laughs> and uh, always have, always have gotten squirrely. But I, uh, the, the, the meanness, the, 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 the selfishness that, that, and the danger. I was born in 59. I grew up in the 60s. Uh, I saw a lot of cruelty up close. I didn't live in a house with that cruelty, which may or may not have saved me. I'd like to think I'd be smart enough to, to turn my back on all that selfishness and cruelty and backwardness. But the truth is, Southerners, and I don't want, you wouldn't misunderstand it, but I don't want anyone to. Southerners are people of the Klan. Now, the C-L-A-N, not the K-L-A-N, although sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes the other, but they are people of the Klan. They need and want to belong. And the thing that is reaching out to them now and pulling them in is a return to um, some of those absences in our finer nature that painted us in the 1960s, painted us for a long time. Painted us certainly long before then. The rhetoric is striking a nerve that right. had been hidden for a while. Right, and, and I think it's just a change of language. Instead of the words you cannot say, I think what happens is they use the economy or they use Obamacare or they use... And, you know, the truth is most of us in the Deep South fall somewhere in the middle. 
you know, I probably swing a little bit further to the side of 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 reform than that because I grew up poor. Your work has gone a very long way. You know, one of the the big selling books these days has been the Hillbilly Elegy, but I felt that through your work, you explained. Uh, so much of that from a first-person perspective. And that leads me to ask you this question. So you had heroes. You were a reader. Talk, I know, I've heard you talk about it, but tell us a little bit about some of those books that meant so much to you growing up. Well, a a raggedy, faded, faded because it was left in the back window, I think, of a Pontiac for a long time. But one of those books that teachers tell you to write, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Sure. And the, the moral, um, and believe me, I don't pretend to be a, a, a moral man or a good guy. I like to think I'm not terrible, but, I, but, but there was a, a beautiful sermon in To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't agree with, with, with all of it. She fell into that uh, uh, trap of... of you know, the, the, the landed gentry, the lawyer class, the old money people, even if they don't have a lot of money, but the old name Southerners kind of got a pass. And right. the villains were always the, you know, the, the, the my, like my people, the lint heads are the people who who lived uh, on the road to the dump. Right. You know, and 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 like the sovereignty commission never existed or or, you know, and everyone who's ever lived in any kind of South knows that poor working class Southerners have very little power. Right. And, uh, but that book, and it's just glorious story. That might be the first time I saw that you could write about this emotional hmm. life, this, this, this beautiful and terrifying and but just this lovely Southern life. And with such grace. And having that cathartic sense to it as well, particularly Absolutely. since you grew up Absolutely. in that yeah. world. And, you know, I, this would have been uh, in the late 60s, 70s. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was still being played out. So, so it begs the question for me, given that Pat Conroy, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee, uh, I know that Moby Dick was one of your right. one of the oh, books gosh, that you yeah. loved yeah. as well. So what made you decide to write from a personal perspective and write memoir? In fact, as a bookseller, I know that you were part of that, that kind of, that new, um, that new kind of memoir that became kind of creative mm-hmm. autobiography, you know, mm-hmm. This Boy's Life, mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so many others came from it, but yours is one of the first. So what made you decide to flip over and, and do something in the nonfiction world? Well, I think the, the, the main thing was that um, that old cliche, write what you know, and uh, look, by then, uh, by the time I was ready to do a book, I had seen, you know, I'd been to the Middle East. I'd, had, I had, you know, been in places where, you know, you could get killed for your shoes. Right. Uh, but the, 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 the hero in my existence had always been my mom, who really did go 18 years without a new dress so that I could have 
school clothes and who really did work on her knees, who really did take in laundry and ironing, who really did, uh, you know, cook with other people's babies swinging on her hip. Yeah. So you, you talk about your mom and your mom is, to me, one of the one of the brightest figures that I've read um, in any book. And uh, and I mean that colorful and lively oh, sure. and just big-hearted. I mean, I feel right. I could see her apron. I right. wish, oh, that yeah, it, yeah. wish that it would embrace me. Right. Well, so well, she was also surrounded by an awful lot of, like, characters, demons. Oh, and, completely. Uh, you, know, you know, everything from faith healers to yeah. radio cowboys to right. bootleggers. She was, I mean, it was a world that you can't even make up. So no, for nonfiction no. is the way to go with it. Well, until so. I ran out and I found <laughs> out I may not live long enough to run out. Right. You know? Well, tell us about the new book then. Sure. Uh, well, I got scared. Um, that might not be the best way to get started on, a, but I got scared. I, I um, about, um, you know, four or five years ago, my mom uh, found out she had cancer and she had been ill even before then. And um, it was uh, turned everything upside down. And, and, and we all know how that is. We all know how that is. And um, uh, but she had a, a, a serious major operation and then she had years of chemo. And, uh, and she, um, she fought him every step of the way. She would lie in her hospital bed and refuse to put on her gown because it was indecent and said she was not going to let her rear end go flapping down the hallway <laughs> in regional medical center in Anniston, Alabama. She just wasn't going to do it. So I had to go get clothes for her to change into because she lay, I'm not making this up. She lay in her hospital bed in fully. khaki pants, fully clothed, wow. khaki jacket, long handle underwear, tops and bottoms, wow. uh, two pairs of socks, and those clunky white orthopedic shoes. And the doctors had to do electrocardiograms and had to do all manner of bloodletting, fully, fully, fully clothed. clothed. And, and, and you can just imagine her comments on the food. And uh, she, um, but I was afraid she was going away. And um, one day I was going to get her clothes and I stepped in her kitchen. And there's always a kick in the, there's always a kick in the ass that a book gets. Somebody, everybody always can tell you where that kick in the ass came from. And for me, uh, that might not be the most eloquent way to say it. I guess some people call it catharsis or epiphany, but it's a kick. Yeah, sure. And uh, I walked in the kitchen, and her kitchen always smelled of baking cornbread, Ooh. you know, crackling cornbread in particular, Ooh. or or uh, fresh biscuits, uh, or that clean scent of fresh sliced cantaloupe, mm. or that acidic scent of of fresh tomatoes pulled out of that red clay because it's the clay that makes them. Hmm. Or pinto beans and ham or beef short ribs and potatoes and onions or simple things, frying cabbage, you know, uh, 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 frying potatoes. Uh, but mostly just bacon grease, you know, or, 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 or some form of tallow. Right. You know, and, and, and I walked in and it just smelled like... Uh, 
It smelled like lemon-scented dishwashing uh-huh. detergent, and it smelled that like old, cold iron. Yeah. That that smell that an iron skillet or a Dutch oven has when it's unused. And it must have scared the hell out of it you. It scared the hell out of me. And, and, and now, now, I'd been scared before. I knew she didn't keep recipes because I'd ask her, you know, because that book would have never seen the light of day if I'd lost my mom. Right. Because I'm not going to do that. I couldn't stand it. So so I'd ask her here and, and, and also would keep her spirits up. I'd say... How do you make this? How come your pinto beans and ham are better than mine? How come your, uh, you know, how come you know, how come you absolutely deny all the secrets of fried chicken, and yet your fried chicken is the best fried chicken on the planet? Your chicken livers, why are they better than anybody's on the planet? Uh, why is your turkey at Thanksgiving? Why is it better than anyone's? And um, Boy, I'm starving. You know, it, 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 <laughs> it, 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 it'll happen. It, it will happen. So I, I knew I didn't want to do a, a, a recipe book. Sure. I knew I didn't want to do a cookbook. First of all, I don't know how. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know how. A chef asked me quite snoodly, they say, well, who was your test kitchen? <laughs> right. And I said, I am six I, foot I, two. I weigh 235 pounds. <laughs> I am the test kitchen. And... Uh, but I, so I wanted to do narratives of, of where our food came from. Where was the genesis? Where was that moment? And, and I knew that wouldn't work unless I could get my people to talk about it. But the, the good thing is there's a phrase in journalism called dog's breakfast. And what it is, is it's, it's you know, when you've assigned all the stories and everybody's got the big idea of what they're going to do, there's always this beautiful stuff left over. Wow. And someone would look at you and say, hey, do the dog's breakfast. And Ew. and it occurred to me that through all my books, there had been journeys of where our food came from, shootings, killings, knifings. Right. Uh, 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 my grandma once considered pushing her tutor down a well. I knew that there were stories. So it began with the narrative. And then all you got to do is say, you remember what y'all had to eat? Right. And I had a lot of people helping me. Well, the beauty, th- the beautiful thing about it is that this book has struck a chord uh, that you must feel very happy about. I mean, yeah. you know, it's made the uh, the indie bestseller list. It's made the New York Times bestseller list. People are talking about it. People are reading it. And I can't remember a book. Uh, let me put it this way. What you set out to do, you really achieved. Wow. You achieved it big, big time. In fact, near St. Pete, the Tampa Bay Times said about this book, the best cook in the world is about family and food and the South and all the intricate connections among them. Rick Bragg grew up in northeastern Alabama where his mother still lives in a, in a quote, this is what you said, a cedar cabin which rises like it grew there from the ancient rocks, oaks, and scaly bark trees in the lee of Bean Flat Mountain in the hilly north of Calhoun County. And all I can say is when I read through it, a boy from Miami Beach wanted to be living right there in Calhoun County. Well, you're welcome Having anytime. some of that food, I'll tell you. And we are live at Books and Books, and I've had such a pleasure with you, Rick. I, it's great to see you, and uh, we can't wait this long for the next time. Absolutely not. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. I hope you like what you heard. 
and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.